0: Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. I am part of the team here at Christ City. want to welcome you. We are continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians. So you have a Bible. I do invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You'll you'll find it very helpful, I think, this morning to follow through, uh, follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the table at the back, or you can always just Google 1 Corinthians 9 on your phone. But basically, we, we find ourselves in chapter 9 in the middle of a section. It's a section that began in chapter 8, and in chapter 8, Paul is responding to a question that this church in Corinth has asked him. The question is, can we eat meat that has been offered to an idol? And so Paul is going to say, sure. Yeah, it's, it's just meat. The, those idols are not real gods. So sure, you can go ahead and eat meat. On the other hand, he says, though, but... There are some Christians who aren't aware that those idols aren't real. You see that their conscience is all entangled, that they have a hard time disassociating idol worship to eating the meat offered to that idol. So sure, while you are allowed to eat meat, what would it look like to bend your knowledge and to actually try and love your brother or sister in Christ by not tempting them to eat meat? So we did the whole yoga thing last week. Should we practice yoga? Should we not practice yoga? It's, it's just moves, but, but maybe it's rooted in Hinduism. Someone came up to me after the gathering and said, I, I'm not sure if yoga is sin, but for me to wear yoga pants is a sin. <laughs> that was a middle-aged man, and I quickly erased that thought from my mind, uh, so, so Paul saying, look, why don't, why don't we use our consciences to actually serve those around us? But that's hard. We acknowledge it's hard. We, we live in an age, Charles Taylor has called, of authenticity. right? It, it's, it's hard to, to go against what we think is right and, and just. Nothing should trump my ability to do what I want to do. And so what Paul's going to do then here in chapter 9 is he's going to use his own life as an example. He's going to show us of what it looks like to lay down our rights for the sake of others. And to lay down our rights for the sake of a gospel. Thus, not only is he pushing against this age of authenticity, he's also pushing against this age of entitlement. In 2009, Gene Twenge and Keith Campbell wrote a book called this. They're psychologists. The book was titled, The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement. The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement. What they've shown is that there has been a significant uptick in narcissists in our society. You say, duh, but they wrote a book, so they're getting paid for it. There's a bunch of people who have a higher and inflated view of self. Some of their evidence was anecdotal, blinged-out soothers with crowns on them because our kids are princesses or princes. Fake paparazzis. You can actually pay people to follow you around, beg you for your picture, beg you for an interview. But other analysis was data-driven. For me, one of the most compelling bits of arguments was that since the year 1980, there has been a rise in song lyrics of the words, me and I, and a dip in the words, we and us. So one of the questions psychologists have often wrestled with is, what's the difference between someone who has a high self-esteem to that of a narcissist? Well, they find out that those who have a high self-esteem actually are still able to care about others. They don't just bulldoze people to get what they want. They actually have empathy for those around them, while the narcissist doesn't really care how you feel. If you're in my way, I run right through you to get what I want. It's me and I instead of we and us. See, the belief is this. We are life's main protagonists. We are life's main protagonists. Journalist Tim Urban coined a term. He said this, we are Gen Y protagonists and special yuppies or, as he liked to call us, gypsies. Now, that's a terrible acronym for many reasons, but but that's what we are. We we become uh, the protagonists in life's special story. The 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 spotlight should be on me. So in extreme cases, this is the teenager complaining about the color of the car mom and dad just bought them. But it also subtly works itself out in our own lives. We have these feelings of entitlement to rest and to recognition. If I'm a, I'm a hard worker, I should deserve a, a break at the end in my retirement. If I've made it in this world, and I've put in my time and hard work, and I've climbed above the rest, I deserve a certain bit of recognition and and status in this world. I made sacrifices at home, then my my kids should look and obey a certain way. And so Paul knew that this was going to be hard. Hard to lay down our rights. Hard to give up the things we feel entitled to. And so he uses his own life as an example for us. He shows us what it's like to lay down our rights, to step back from the spotlight so that Jesus can be front and center. So we're going to look at this in three, three headings. Getting what we deserve, giving up what we deserve, and getting more than we deserve. Firstly, getting what we deserved. Look at verse 1 again. Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? You see, there there were people in the church who had begun to doubt Paul's authority as an apostle. And in some ways, you can understand where they're coming from. They're saying, Paul, look, you're not one of the twelve. You weren't around. While Jesus was on Earth, you you weren't there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and and empowered His church. You're not even one of the apostles that replaced Judas. That that was Matthias. You're not you're not even one of those. And and, and so Paul says, Hol, "Hold on, have I not seen Jesus, our Lord?" That was the key prerequisite to to being an apostle. You, you had to have seen the, the risen Lord. And, and Paul says, look, Jesus came to me while I was on the road to Damascus. He, he knocked me off of my horse. He, he showed me his glory and, and he called me to be an apostle. I, I've seen him. I, I haven't just seen his resurrected state. I've seen him in his exalted state. And so I, above everyone else, have the ability to proclaim Christ's victory over sin and death. More than that, Paul says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord, verse 1? He gets it. He's like, look, others can doubt my apostleship, but you? Like, I, I, I helped plant this church. Aren't you aware of the work that God's been doing in your, in your midst? How can you doubt that I'm an apostle? He says, says, if to others I am not an apostle, I at least am to you, verse 2, for you are the seal of my apostleship. It's like a king, right, who who authenticates his message. He, He drips some little wax, I think that's how it works, and he takes his signet ring and he seals it saying, this is from the king. Paul's saying, that's what you are, Church. You're the seal. You're, you're the proof of authenticity, that, that my message is real, and that God is at work in your life. How can you doubt that I'm an apostle? I, I am an apostle. And so Paul then goes on. He says, as an apostle, I have certain rights. There's certain things I deserve. So he goes on in verse three. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do not we have the right to eat and drink? All food has been declared clean. I can, I can eat and drink what I want to eat. Verse 5. Do, do we not have the right to, to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? If I see a nice Christian lady, I am allowed to marry her and to have children and to practice having children. Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And that's the big one. Paul says, don't I have the right to be paid? Don't I have the right to be paid? And so Paul is now going to give a bunch of examples showing that he has this right to be paid. He's going to prove it from life, from law, and from the Lord. So first... He appeals to life. He says, verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? If you were a Roman soldier who served your country, served the empire, the empire pays you. They provide your food and your armor. He goes on, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? I once asked my brother, if he could own any business, what would it be? He said, I would own a vineyard. and It wasn't for distribution. It was because he wanted to drink the wine. Or, he says, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? If I take care of sheep or cows, I should get to drink some of the milk that they produce. Or the cheese that I can make from it. Don't you get it? Life shows you that if you work at something, you deserve to be paid by that very thing. Then he argues from the law. He goes on in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Or does the law, does not the law say the same? So Paul's now gonna quote the Old Testament, the, f- the first five books of the Bible, the-, the law of Moses, as it was called. Verse 9: For it is written in the law of Moses: you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, it is for oxen that God is concerned? Or is it for oxen that God is concerned? So, so here's what would happen, right? You, you would take some of your grain that you've harvested from the field. The oxen would kind of go around and aground and, and he would be turning a millstone. You take some of that grain, you pour it in the center and that oxen would turn the millstone and it would crush that grain into a powder. And Paul says, the law says, you shouldn't muzzle the ox. The, the ox gets to eat some of that flour that it helps produce. And so, so Paul asks the question, does, he, does, does Moses write this for the sake of the ox? Answer, no. Oxen don't read. But secondly, he, he's arguing from, from an argument of the lesser to the greater. Look, if God even cares for the ox, then how much more does he care for the human made in the image of God that he would be able to reap some of what he works for? And then he gives the principle, verse 10. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope. And the thresher thresh in a hope of sharing in the crop. Working conditions should be such the case that when we work, we have hope that we'd be able to benefit in the end of whatever it is we produce. This, this is the idea of overtime. Overtime comes from this idea, right? We we put in extra work. We work harder than expected of us. And so we should reap extra. We, we should get extra pay or, or banked time. We should work in the hope of something coming our way. And so Paul says this in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. If you pay other people, Paul's saying, to work for you, should you not also pay us? He argues from life, from the law, and now he argues from the Lord. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So he, he expects their pushback, right? Okay, yes, you've given an agricultural example, Paul. Yes, you've given a, a soldierial, if that's a word, example. What what about Clergy, you might ask Paul, what what Paul uses he he here uses the word temple here. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple? But he uses the singular. He's not he's not just talking about all the temples in Corinth. He's talking about the Jerusalem temple, the temple of Yahweh, the one true God, the Creator. Now you might ask, though, okay, but Paul, what does that have to do with you? You you don't work at that temple. But but Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6:19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. Paul saying, you're the temple that I work in now. You you're my place of employment. And I work in you. I, I, I want to bring something beautiful out of you. Should I not get paid from that? And so he quotes, or he paraphrases Jesus in Matthew 10.10. 10. He says, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Jesus said when you go to all the other places and you you serve them, you don't have to worry about bringing food or, or money with you. They should provide your way. So here's Paul's point. First, more broadly, you deserve to be paid fairly. You deserve to be paid fairly. This passage is perhaps the clearest passage in the whole Bible that articulates that we should be fairly compensated for our work. If you are an employer, those who work under you are not pawns that you can dispose of at your own will. You're not supposed to use other people just so you climb and climb and climb the social ladder. Others have dignity and work. They should work in hope of benefiting from the things that they cultivate. Secondly, though, if you are an employee, you shouldn't get paid for slacking off. We're called to work hard for that wage that we've agreed upon. People deserve to be paid fairly. That's Paul's broad point. His narrow point, so do pastors. Now, uh, obviously awkward a little bit. <laughs> it's, but it's, it's actually a little bit easier for me. I'm not paid by this church. You, you, you don't pay me. I, I'm paid by the denomination. So it's actually a little bit easier for me to say. There's this, sometimes this idea goes around in, amongst churches that we, we want to keep our pastors humble. We, sh- we should keep our pastors humble, and, and so we, don't, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't pay them too much. That's like a shepherd leading his flock to green pastures and still waters, and the sheep are just feasting. They feel at rest. They're delighting in where their shepherd has brought them, and they say, we should keep our shepherd humble. We should eat his lunch and also eat the food he was going to bring home to his family. The Bible actually says that, that pastors should be paid well. That, that those who are, are, work hard and are honorable should actually be paid double. As hard as that is to believe. And so Paul says, look, I think this is the principle. The, the church should try to be as generous as possible and pay their pastor as much as they can. In return, the pastor should be as generous as possible and take as little as he can. And Paul says, but you don't pay me anything. You you don't pay me. I deserve to be paid by you. You deserve to support me. This This is what is right and unjust. Fourteen verses to hammer home this one idea. Illustration after illustration after illustration. Argument stacked upon argument stacked upon argument to say, you should pay me all for Paul to say this, and I give up this right. And I don't want it. I give up this right. So our second point, giving up what we deserve. Giving up what we deserve. Look, look at verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. It's hard to think of a, a, a more emphatic way in the Greek language in which this section was originally written, to, to say, I give up my rights. It, it's literally as if Paul would say, I have made not use of none of my rights. I absolutely have a stake at this. I sh- this is my claim. I could I could have it if I want to. But Paul says, no way I give up that right. Why? Why give up your right, Paul? He He says this in verse 12. He says this in the second half. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. I don't want anything to get in your way of seeing who Jesus is and what he's done for you. I was having dinner last night uh, and for the first time, and it feels like a long time, it's sunny outside, and I'm just sitting there, and, and the sun is is streaming through my windows, and all of a sudden, the sun hits my window in such a way that I see all of my children's fingerprints all over the window. It's like the whole thing, it's a big window, they've climbed up on top of the couch to, for some reason, have to reach the top of the window. The thing looks like a Jackson Pollock painting. Anyways, I can barely see through the window. And Paul says, Look, I I want you to be able to see through my life the gospel. I want it to be crystal clear. The good news of Jesus. It's like the, the church of Corinth is, is standing on the edge of the Pacific Ocean, and he just wants them to see the vastness and the beauty of what is before them. And he says, I don't want anything to get in your way. I don't want my life to be streaks on the window. But what does that have to do with getting paid, right? <laughs> you see, there there are two 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 trains of thought in the ancient world at the time. If you were from a Jewish background, if you were a a teacher amongst the Jews, a a rabbi, it was actually expected that you would work with your hands. So so you would be a a carpenter, a, a bricklayer, or in the case of Paul, he was a tent maker. Now, I would not want to wish anyone to be a tent maker, but that's mainly because I don't think anyone should go camping thank you. We deserve a break, right? Camping is not a, a break. But no, tent making was, was hard in the world. You, you were a leather worker. It, it, it would beat down your, your body, stretching the leather, making these, making these tents, carrying the carcasses. His, his hands would have been stained with blood from handling the animal, trying to remove, remove its hide. But, but here's the thing, that wasn't the case in the Greco-Roman world. If you're a teacher among the Greeks, the Romans, the, the wise, it was actually expected that others would pay you. The only reason you would have to work is if you weren't very good at what you did. And so other people didn't pay you. And so my question is, then, okay, but then Paul, why didn't you just take the money? They would have been used to paying other people. I mean, think of how productive Paul would have been if he even gave up his right or took, laid hold of his right and, and gave up tent-making. But Paul says, no. It would obstruct your view of the gospel. You see, Paul wasn't the only teacher who had come to Corinth. The idea is that someone would come, they would espouse their new idea, their philosophy, their spirituality, And Paul says, look, I'm worried that you would think Christianity is like all the rest. This is not just some new idea that you can put on your shelf and add it to all the other ideas that you have in your life about the way this world works and who you should be worshiping. No, this is a life-transforming idea. This changes all of you down to your core. This this isn't not like, like all the rest. You see, also, these other teachers would come, they would stand up on stage, they'd, they'd give their spiel, and if people liked them, well, then they'd say, hey, let's pay you. But we expect something in return. Essentially, that, that person who would support the teacher would become their patron. Think politician, honestly. The politician is, is helped by some wealthy man or woman, fundraise for their campaign, but then the politician is expected to, to speak at, at corporate events, to, to bolster the reputation of that wealthy businessman or businesswoman. The politician was, was to support, maybe through, through their laws, that they would change. The, the success of that businessman or businesswoman. And so Paul wants to make sure it's very clear here. Two things. One, you do not get to manipulate the gospel. This is not a, hey, let's use the gospel to to help us succeed in the world. No, the gospel changes you. The, The gospel transforms your life, not the other way around. And secondly, the gospel isn't just for a select few. The gospel doesn't just go to the highest bidder, the person who has success and reputation in the eyes of this world. The gospel is for the lowly, for the hurting person, for the weak one, for the one who feels like they have no claim on this world. That's who the gospel is for. It's not received by by paying a certain amount of money. It's received by grace through faith. It's a gift. And how would you see that, Paul asked? How would Corinth see that if he took their money? See, Paul isn't afraid to take money from other churches. That's the interesting thing here. Paul actually takes money from uh, the church in Philippi and the church in Thessalonica and they're broke. Seriously, they have like no money. And they're begging Paul to take, take their money. Take it, Paul. Please use this money for the spread of the gospel. And Paul says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take your money. But, but he won't do that in Corinth. Not in this city that cared too much about power and money. See, Paul's not against using our rights like Period. No, he, he'll make use of some of his other rights, right? So in the book of Acts, we find out that there were some uh, Jewish leaders who, who came and they arrested Paul on a false charge. And they want to imprison him. And what does Paul say? He says, no, I appeal to Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. I'm allowed to argue my defense in a court of law. So take me to Caesar, Why would Paul do that? It's because he wants to get to Rome. And Caesar is in Rome. And Rome is the center of the world. And if he gets to Rome, the gospel gets to Rome. And then the gospel can go forth to the ends of this world. You see, it's not like rights bad. It's no, no, rights good, but they're not ultimate. The gospel is. And so where our rights actually empower us to to share the news of Jesus, we lay hold of our rights. Where our rights hinder us from sharing the news of Jesus, we push them aside. So what would it look like for us to as clearly as possible through our words and then backed up by our conduct show the world what the gospel is? in our homes, to our kids, in our workplaces, at the grocery store, in the restaurant, amongst our friends. Like, what rights do we need to get rid of to make sure the gospel is front and center? Or maybe what rights do we need to hold on to so that the gospel is front and center? Right? So maybe... Maybe you you have the decision, do do I work overtime? And you say, no. No, I'm going to use my right to go home at the end of the day to take my time and to use it so that others might know Jesus. Or you might say, I need to work overtime. And yeah, I'm going to give up my right to have a break and I'm going to work hard. So that maybe this person I'm working for sees the work of Jesus? How can we step back from the spotlight so that Jesus is center? So, we forgo what we deserve to make the gospel clearly seen, but we also do it for reward. And so this brings us to our last point getting more than we deserve. Getting more than we deserve. Look at verse 15 again. Paul says, But I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. But Paul literally has a spasm in this verse. The the language here in Greek is very odd. It, it It doesn't make sense. Literally, it reads this. For I would rather die than, and then there's like a gap. And we just fill in the gap with what we think Paul might have been thinking. But, but, but Paul is like losing his mind here. He's, he's so passionate about giving up his rights. That he says, for I would rather die uh, than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So why is Paul getting all riled up here? What, what is it about taking money that would remove his ability to, to boast in, in the good sense of having this inner delight before God. Uh, He says this in verses 16 and 17. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. See, here's I think what's going on. Canadian theologian D.A. Carson, he, he notes this. He says, Paul's call to apostleship is different than all the other apostles. It's different. Take Cephas, also known as Peter, for example. First Jesus calls Peter to follow him, right? He's on a boat, he's fishing. Jesus says, Peter, come follow me. And and Peter's like, sure. And then he gets three years of of kind of training. Near the end of his time with Jesus, he just, just terribly disowns Jesus three times. Then Jesus comes back to life, restores him threefold, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, Feed my sheep. And then Peter, with this full awareness of the cost of being an apostle, says, okay, I'll do it. But, but for Paul, it wasn't like that. For Paul, he, he was saved, he was converted, and he was called in the same time. Jesus knocks him off the horse on the way to Damascus. He says, follow me and be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so Peter, he feels like, look, I, I can't not do this. Like for me to, to give up being an apostle, it's like I would disown my very conversion. They're, they're all in, one and the same for me, he says. he says. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's not like, a, oh, have pity on me if I don't preach the gospel. This is like, no, I am damned This is is like end-time language. I'm damned before God if I fail to preach the gospel. I have to do this. If this was a choice, Paul says, then maybe I would have a reward. But for me, it's stewardship. And so I don't get to boast by just preaching the gospel. So then he says, verse 18, What then is my reward? What's then my reward? He says, let me show you that I want to do this. Let me show you that I'm doing this not because being an apostle is wrapped up in my salvation. Let me show you that that Jesus saved me and I once mocked him. I once murdered those who follow him and now he's made me his son. Let me show you that I want to do this. That if I had the choice to actually do something else, I would still do this very thing. Let me show you that I love Jesus, that I love God, and that I love the gospel. Let me show you how much I want to do this by doing it for free. That's the only thing I can boast in then. That I actually give up my rights. He says, what then is my reward? That in preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make use of any of my rights in the gospel. See, there's two types of rewards Paul has in mind. The first one is external rewards. There's external rewards. All this, this language of, end time language, this, this standing before God on, on judgment day. I think Paul is alluding to that this future reward we'll receive when all our deeds are laid bare before Jesus, right? And he has this in mind, I think, earlier on in his letter. So in 1 Corinthians 3, he says this, Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. He's saying, look, God's going to pay us back. Don't you get it? I Just for 14 verses showed you that God cares about doing what is right. When you forgo then what is right, God repays you. God's no one's debtor. Right? So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, look, there's two options. You You can give to the needy, sound a trumpet, and someone will praise you, and that's your reward. Look, you actually deserve a reward for giving to the needy. And if you sound your trumpet and let others know, you get their recognition, and that's your reward. You get to feel good before them. Or you can do it silently. And no one has to know except Jesus. And Jesus says, then I'll give you a reward. Either way, though, God's going to make sure we get a reward. So when we help our friend, and it feels like we've helped them over and over again, and they're doing, they do nothing in return, but we do it because we love God and we love our neighbor, God goes, I see you. I'll repay that back one day. When we're at home, and we're cleaning up macaroni for what literally feels like the fifth time. Don't judge. Maybe we feed our kids macaroni five times a week. And no one sees you and your kids aren't like, Mom and Dad, you should just put up your feet and take a rest. And we're so thankful for the ways you love us. God sees that. <laughs> he, he'll pay you back. he When we give up something, we only ever give it up temporarily. You hear that? When we give up a right, when we we forego something that we deserve, we only ever do it temporarily. God will pay us back. There's an external reward. But there's also, he says, an internal reward. There's a delight that comes in the very act itself. He, He says this in verse 18 again. He says, What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge. It's like Paul saying, Here's my reward. My reward is that I don't get a reward. And you're like, Paul, that's why no one understands you. That doesn't make sense. But I think we don't understand it because I think this isn't normally the categories we think through. Right? We we always think of something external that needs to, to come our way. But but Paul says, no, what actually makes me happy, what what satisfies me is the purity of my motivation. That that I'm doing this just because I love Jesus. I'm not not doing this for the money. I'm not doing this because I need to survive and I need to eat food for your reputation. I'm I'm doing this because I love Jesus and that makes me happy, Paul says. Canadian singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell, she wrote a song Uh, about observing a a busker playing their clarinet on the side of a busy street corner. And she writes this. She says this. Now me, I play for fortunes and those velvet curtain calls. I've got a black limousine and two gentlemen escorting me to the halls. And I play if you have the money or if you're a friend to me, but the one-man band by the quick lunch stand, he was playing real good for free. And she goes, I want to know, why why really am I doing this whole music thing? Am I doing it for the fame, because you pay me, because I get to be in all these big halls? And she questions her very core. I'm not like that clarinet player who just does it for free because they love music. Paul goes, I want to do this just because I love him. I want to do this because the gospel is more precious to me than anything else. See, there's a satisfaction that that comes to the teacher when they're working extra time, they're they're marking uh, extra meticulously, they're they're putting in extra work, not because they want to Pay raise, not because they're going to get a promotion, but because Jesus loved children and he cared about their well being. There's something satisfying that comes to the retired person who says, Yeah, I'm giving up my time to love the church because Jesus, well, he gave up his whole life for me. There's something satisfying about one spouse loving another sacrificially because Christ loved his bride. Sacrificially. We we lay down what we deserve for the sake of the gospel because we receive more than we deserve. Both external and internal rewards. So let me end like this. John Patton was a missionary to uh, cannibals in Vanuatu. If, If you go from here to Hawaii, and you keep going almost all the way to Australia, you, you reach the island of Tana. Three months into arriving, he, he took his wife with him. She died. They were newly married. She dies three months into arriving. One month after that, the child they just had, he also dies. He buries them both He sleeps on their tombs so the cannibals don't eat them. And he's going insane. And the thing that sustains him is his wife's testimony. Moments before she died, Mary, his wife, wrote this. I do not regret leaving home and friends. If I had it to do over, I would do it with more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. I'd do it again with more pleasure, with all my heart. What what leads a woman to answer like that? What leads a woman to say, I've left behind my family. I've left behind my home. I've tried to serve the Lord with all I have. I finally have a child. I lose my child. I've been here. I'm trying to love these cannibals. I've lost my life. I would do it all over again. I've given up what I deserve and I would do it all over again. What leads a man to say, I've given up my right to be paid by you? What leads us to lay down the things we feel entitled to? Is it not this, that we've been made free? Isn't that how Paul begins, verse 1? Am I not free? Christ died. And he rose again for us. And when we put our hope in what he's done on our behalf, our identity is secure. Our future is secure. Nothing can take that away from us anymore. And so I no need to pass my time trying to earn my place in this world. It's not about getting my slice of this world. It's not not about making sure others see me in the right light, that I get the, the right reputation, that I get my little bit of pleasure now before it all passes away. No, Jesus has paid it all and he's given it to us all. We're free. And there's an eternity waiting for us just around the corner. And so instead of having to grind our way through life, trying to earn something, grab and hold of the things we're entitled to, we can let them go for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of that person who doesn't know Jesus, so that they might also be free. Let me pray for us. Father, we... Ah, This is hard. It's hard. because, because we, we're afraid. We, we don't know what will happen if we, if we let it go. Feel like something negative might befall us. God, help us to, to, to truly put our hope in you. Help us to, to feel it deep into our bones, Lord, that nothing actually everlastingly bad can happen to us. God, God, I pray we would, we would try to live our lives so that we might clearly show this world who you are. Help us to, to paint the clearest possible picture of the gospel. God, for your glory and our joy, would you do this? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, If you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at Jake at christitychurch.ca